Welcome back to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined this week by Steve Hayes, as always, but Scott Lincecombe, our Dispatch newsletter writer for Capitalism, which you've got to subscribe to, is joining us, as well as Declan Garvey, our editor for The Morning Dispatch. And we've got a great lineup of topics today. We're going to talk about the border crisis. We're going to talk about the American rescue package and why Republicans have been relatively silent on this popular bill. We will also talk about the Biden foreign policy. Is it just a retrenchment to the Obama years? And lastly, is the filibuster on life support or is it doing push-ups? And first, we have not talked about what is happening at the border on this podcast and the the conversation happening in Washington and at the White House press podium these days is a little baffling because mostly it's about whether to call it a crisis or not, but far less about the facts of what's actually going on. So I want to put aside the word crisis because I'm not sure that that's the most relevant conversation we can have today. And instead, talk about what we're hearing from the right, what we're hearing from the White House, and what we're hearing from the Mexican president as well. So let's start with uh, the Mexican president. This is from Reuters last week. Mexico's government is worried the new U.S. administration's asylum policies are stoking illegal immigration and creating business for organized crime according to officials and internal assessments seen by Reuters. Uh, This is Mexican President uh, Abrador. They see him, Biden, as the migrant president, and so many feel they're going to reach the United States. We need to work together to regulate the flow because this business can't be tackled from one day to the next. And indeed, some officials are saying that the gangs and human smugglers are showing quote, an unprecedented level of sophistication since Biden took office and that their business is taking off as well. Uh, As one official said, migrants have become a commodity, but if a packet of drugs is lost in the sea, it's gone. If migrants are lost, it's human beings we're talking about. On the other hand, from the White House, uh, and the White House chief of staff retweeted an op-ed by Greg Sargent in the Washington Post that I'll put in the show notes, Their argument is uh, Trump's remain in Mexico policy was far worse in humanitarian and rule of law terms. And so Trump wasn't trying to solve the problem. Biden's the one who's actually trying to solve the problem. And that, you know, if you dig into these numbers, the same number was seen in 2019. That wasn't that long ago. And so this isn't unprecedented. It's just higher than it was for the last two years. And that what Biden is doing long-term will help. And short-term, it is simply the more humanitarian thing to do. Of course, the weight in Mexico policy said that someone who wanted to apply for asylum needed to apply in Mexico and wait in Mexico before their asylum claim was adjudicated. And then if they were found to have a credible fear, then they could come into the United States. Now, just some quick stats about asylum claims. In 2009, 
DHS conducted 5,000 credible fear reviews. By 2016, that number had increased to 94,000. The number of aliens placed in removal proceedings went from 4,000 in 2009 to 73,000 by 2019, a 19-fold increase. So certainly I think the White House has a point. This isn't unprecedented so much as it's been a really steady, sharp rise for more than a decade. At the same time, whether the Biden administration intended it or not, one wonders whether the true beneficiaries here are really migrants who need asylum, as they want to claim, or smugglers and human traffickers who are making lots of money out of this. So Steve, I'm going to start with you. How do you weigh a situation that is this nuanced in a political culture that is not nuanced? What? You don't think we have a nuanced political culture? Jeez. Um, look, I think the answer, the, the direct answer to your to the question you just posed is that both, right? It, it it benefits both the migrants potentially and the and the smugglers. Um, it, it gives them business. I think the the critiques on both sides, from the left and from the right of the Biden administration, are, are largely on point. The bigger question, the bigger question is what's the long term solution here? I mean, there's two questions. What do you, what's the long-term solution here? And what's the bridge to get to the long-term solution here? And what's, what is pretty striking in, in reading, um, you know, sort of surveying the coverage of this over the past couple of weeks is that the Biden administration didn't seem to have much of a plan here. Uh, they talked about it. They campaigned about it. They identified this as a problem. They knew that they were going to reverse many of Donald Trump's policies, but when you when you look at what they're saying, it's not they can't really say we're moving from A to B and this is how we designed the move. This is what we came up with to facilitate this. And that is a little surprising for somebody who ran as the competence candidate, the, the guy who said, you know, we're going to re- return professionalism to Washington. It's not there. And as a consequence, I think you're seeing administration uh, spokespeople, whether it's Jen Psaki at the White House podium, whether it's the, the, the spokespersons for the Department of Homeland Security and others, jumble a message. They can't answer even the most basic questions. And they're often talking sort of at, at, at uh, their, their talking points are at odds with one another. That I think is, is a, uh, you know, a big challenge for the administration on, on messaging, but more importantly, reflects a lack of coherent policy underneath it. Declan, the conversation just in the last 24 hours has shifted somewhat as well because uh, we now have reporting that four people on the terrorist watch list, three from Yemen and one from Serbia, were found at the border. Now, on the one hand, everyone agrees this actually is relatively unusual. On the other hand, it's just another huge problem for the Biden administration when they're dealing with, as Steve said, really a fumbled response on unaccompanied minors that have soared at the border that they are letting in and putting in these facilities that are then getting overwhelmed because of COVID restrictions. Uh, The human smuggling and human trafficking aspects of what's happening in Mexico now. And now there's terrorists trying to enter through the border. Which one is the Biden administration most capable of tackling first? And will they try to shift the, the conversation to that one? 
Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, it. I would say it, you're not going to be able to tackle really that that latter one on on the terrorism front while the numbers are as high as they are right now. It's it's just so. I mean, the, these agencies are so clearly overwhelmed um, at at this point and um, are struggling to uh, deal with the with the more immediate uh, child uh, or unaccompanied child crisis that that we have. And I, I don't mean to set off a firestorm by using the word crisis there, but, um, you know, it, it really is going to be, uh, the Alejandro Mayorkas, the, the secretary of Homeland security is, is testifying before the Senate today. Um, Biden is going to increasingly be, be asked about this as, as the weeks go on here. And, and they've said, something along the lines of wanting to beef up their their capacity to process these people rather than necessarily changing the the policies to to reduce the the number of people although um Biden did say in an interview with ABC News this week that uh in a in a message to would be migrants that they should not come here right now that they should stay in their towns and communities now is not the time for them to come etc um but I mean, that's that's not going to that in and of itself is not going to to lower the the. Um, that's not a policy change. Yeah, I mean, correct. That... And so, um, you know, it 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 will be made to, and we can we can talk a little bit more about this uh, when we get to my topic later in the podcast. But uh, it seems to me that the real long longer term solution to this uh, would have to come through comprehensive immigration reform, which uh, is incredibly unlikely while the while the filibuster remains in place in the Senate. And so that could be another one of these issues that ends up triggering um, more debates around that. Um, I, I will say I just saw um, the NRSC, the, the National Republican Senatorial Committee, just leaked internal polling to, to um, the Hill this morning showing that uh, 62% of Americans oppose Biden's immigration policies right now compared to 32% who support them. Um, they obviously see this as an opportunity to uh, to capitalize ahead of the 2022 midterms if this continues to be a problem. You saw, um, you know, dozens of, of uh, House Republicans uh, head down to the border itself earlier this week to to draw attention to what's happening down there, just as you saw Democrats do the same in the Trump administration. Um, you know, it, it will be interesting to see if this is kind of a steady drumbeat that continues over the next two years leading into um, into the, the November elections. And if this is something that Republicans can really uh, drive home. That being said, you don't you know, these these are children. These are people's lives. You don't want to turn them into a political football, um, you know, that that ends up being what happens kind of no matter which party is in power. It's, it's unfortunate. Um, but you know it's it's important to remember that there are thousands of kids right now uh, sleeping in on mats and uh, unsure of where they're going to be in the next two days and and whatnot. And so um, this is it. It really is a, a sad situation and, and one that that our very uh, harsh current political reality is not is not well equipped to to deal with right now. Scott, I want to talk to you about some nerd topics here. I want to do like I want to do some real econ on this. Uh, too often immigration becomes this emotional debate. Um, what do we actually know about the effect on the labor force and on wages of having a huge influx of 
uh, new migrant labor that does not have work authorization? And what do we know about the effects on the economy about a declining birth rate and what uh, migrant children who are unaccompanied have to offer in that sense? Like what, what are the economics of the immigration debate? Sure. Well, and and I think it's actually first to note that the the U.S. economy being on the upswing and and about to get some rocket fuel from the American Rescue Plan um, is also going to act as a magnet of sorts um, because in terms of regional economic performance, especially compared to Mexico and then of course Central America um, and South America, I mean, we're just going we're relative in relative terms dominating. Um, and so that is going to, I think, also act as a, a bit of a magnet, um, as it has in the past. Regardless um, of Biden's immigration policy. Right, right. I mean, that, and that gets to the bigger point. I mean, a lot of this is being driven by things that, you know, we Americans, we love to say, oh, this is all under our control. We can, you know, and, and I mean, yeah, a lot of this are bigger things than, um, than can simply be flipped by a switch or renaming, uh, re- going from remain in Mexico to wait in Mexico or that kind of stuff. Um, and and I think that that's it seems like it's going to continue um, in terms of again the the higher flows of immigrants than we've seen um, recently, uh, given again the U.S. economic performance. Uh, but in general, uh, the economics literature on on uh, you know migrants, whether it be uh, documented or undocumented, is pretty clear cut, and that is that um, my. Uh, Immigrants tend to, particularly low-skill immigrants, which is uh, presumably what we're dealing with here, um, tend to have a a modest impact on certain U.S. workers. So what I mean by modest impact is they can negatively affect certain U.S. workers. Those are going to typically be the least skilled uh, workers, so people without a high school degree primarily, um, while having very little uh, and and perhaps even a beneficial effect for, for all other groups of U.S. workers. But the other side is the demand side. And that's where things get more complicated because uh, migrants also tend to consume stuff. They uh, and, and that economic activity can, again, be good for, for the economy. And so overall, you, we, the literature shows that still a, a, a net benefit for the economy from uh, increased inflows of, of immigrants, even low-skilled immigrants. But you know, look, as a political issue, there are there are concerns when you're dealing kind of at the at the bottom end of the the wage scale. Although we've seen over the last year, a lot of these jobs that are usually filled by uh, migrant laborers um, just going unfilled. Uh, you hear farmers, uh, people in the tourism industry, although that's still kind of shut down, basically saying they can't find workers. So this is kind of the old uh, cliche of doing jobs that Americans won't do. Um, there, we have seen some evidence of that because, of course, the COVID restrictions really dramatically curtailed um, uh, immigration over the last year. And there's there's been some evidence that that, that has just left to unfilled Jobs, not any real major boost for for low wage labor in the United States. Um, but you mentioned, yeah, um, immigrants also like to have babies, and uh, the United States has a pretty significant issue in terms of long term demographic. Uh, as we're getting older and we're not having kids, um, that was again exacerbated during the COVID crisis. Uh, people stopped having babies. Uh, surprisingly, when you're trapped at home with your significant other. 
you actually don't want to have more kids. Uh, I can say as a married man who was trapped in a house with his family for a little bit, I can maybe see how that, how that works. Um, I don't think it's so much trapped uh, in your house with your significant other as it is trapped in your house with the kids that you already have that you're like, I don't right. think well, we I, need to I, add yeah, to And this. I have significant others in the broader uh, sense. Yeah. Uh, I yes. mean, it, it I mean, the tight. use of the word, the use of the word trapped is the giveaway there, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I should, I could say imprisoned. I mean, it was the state, uh, doing that but uh but yeah so so look back to the back to the point now i'm in deep deep water nobody send this uh podcast to my wife thank you um it's good to drop these in we we all do this we test to see whether significant others and spouses listen and if you don't get any grief you know by the way i got busted the other day because we had zoom drinks with a couple who listen and they let Scott in on something I said. And I just denied. I just said it never happened. And you know what? He still hasn't gone back to listen. That's not the right. No, that's, (laughs) I mean, Sarah, I don't want to get involved in your marriage. The other, the other possible response would be indignant that he's didn't listen. Like, oh, no. I can't believe you don't. I can't believe you don't support me in my career, You're Scott. You're right. You're right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Scott, who's uh, soon to be maybe not married. Uh, well, <laughs> tell us some more. <laughs> well, no. So, so um, look to the extent that um, we we think that uh, fertility rates in the United States are a problem. I, I think that most people tend to say they are. Um, babies are good for all sorts of reasons. We talked about that on the last podcast. Um, yeah, to the you know you you do see higher birth rates among immigrants, and so that that can also be a a, a benefit that that is not seen. Now now it is I think difficult or impossible really to separate all of these cold hard economic facts from the realities that, that are going down going on at the border. Um, which is, it's just a giant, giant mess. Uh, now my question though, I had a question for Declan when, when you said about, you know, look, we need to have a comprehensive immigration reform package here. I mean, is that really true for even things like just providing additional resources to process claims? Cause it's my rudimentary understanding that one of the real big problems we have is that we simply can't process the claims. We don't have enough judges and, and, uh, other folks that are available to do that. I mean, is that really something that we just can't, uh, that, that can't be a standalone package or is it always going to get bogged down in the politics and the, the rest? Oh, Declan, <laughs> I have thoughts on the judges issue. Why don't you, why don't you share those first? So here's part of the issue. The, um, <laughs> I don't know if I've used this uh, metaphor on, on this show, but the asylum policy is like cranberries in the ocean spray thing. Like you get lots of opportunities to bounce out of the the bucket. Um, and I highly recommend a tour of the ocean spray facility. It's fascinating and cranberry juice is delicious. So what you have are a huge number of applications at the front end of just people saying at the border, literally the magic words, I have a credible fear of returning home. 88% of those are passed right on through the system by whichever DHS official they say that to. And so, yes, if you want to get to the final stage, having more judges would help. But there's all sorts of stages before you ever get to the judge, like giving DHS officials a far more robust way to determine, you know, ask a follow-up question. Does your credible fear fall into one of the legal categories 
race, religion, political affiliation, um, most of them, many of them, let me say, don't meet that at the next stage. Well, we could sort that out at the first stage and then at the second stage. So basically my point is of the four or so stages, um, we could do a lot more and not need more judges. But if we're going to sort of pass everyone through who comes to the border directly to an immigration judge, then yeah, I guess we do. Um, And that I think is the reason that you're not seeing an easy solution and compromise to that in Congress is because the Republicans are saying, yeah, but we only need more judges because we're just letting every single 88% of people who come to the border eventually just get straight to an immigration judge. And so they're unwilling to add more judges unless any administration adds more robustness to those first few planks. I would say there's, uh, I would add to that there's another reason that we have seen such little progress overall on immigration reform. And it's a progress that, I mean, it's, it's a problem that's familiar to us in our discussions of so many other issues. The fight benefits the two political parties. You know, if you look at what motivates uh, sort of the conservative base Donald Trump's we're going to build the wall and make Mexico pay for it was a was a pretty money line for him when he ran in in 2016. Um, the similar similar dynamic on the left. Um, in you know, 2012 you have, for Obama, he or 20, 2012 for Obama, 2008 yes, exactly. he had a unified government and right. he didn't do anything on immigration. So the, the loudest voices in each of the parties uh, likes the political issue, and when when the political issue is deemed more valuable than the actual solutions to the problems, the solutions to the problems are going to remain elusive. And I think that's at least part of the dynamic here. Um, And and that's why I'm pretty skeptical for real long-term immigration reform, comprehensive immigration reform. Steve, I have one follow-up for you on that, which is uh, I have another reason that it's going to get harder politically along exactly what you just said, that it benefits the two parties. But one of the things that's always been odd about how it benefits the two parties is political parties have to encompass all these contradictions because there's only two of them. So there's all sorts of things that, you know, two things that Republicans believe that actually are in tension with each other. One of those things used to be immigration and shutting down the borders and not letting anyone in because actually a lot of their biggest donors and supporters and sort of the traditional Republican benefited, as Scott said, economically from having low-skilled, cheaper labor. But as the Republican Party shifts, you know, in the Marco Rubio, they want to be more for unions. They want to be more for low-skilled American labor, lower-skilled, I should say. Um, And they are picking up support among non-white communities that actually fits with what Scott has said in terms of the economic impact of uh, low-skilled entrance into the labor force, which I find really interesting and is going to make it actually even harder because there won't be the pressure on the Republican Party from the sort of, uh, you know, visa crowd that wants to increase visas, et cetera. I was wondering how you saw that argument playing out. Yeah, it's it's a really good good question. You know, Senator Tom Cotton has been kind of on the leading edge of this. He's been making those arguments. I mean, he's framed the immigration debate now for years, really, as long as he's been in the Senate, as one that's primarily about American workers and the effect on American workers. And as Scott says, 
you know, it, it, Scott says it has a modest effect on, on American workers and usually at the lower end of the wage scale. And I think Cotton's response, I was thinking of him uh, as you said that, Scott, would be, yeah, modest to you. If you're losing your job, it's it's not modest at all, right? Yeah, but um, I mean... I mean, I can, I can not to, not to, sorry, but I mean, the economics literature is pretty robust in that when I mean modest, I'm talking actually a little bit of wage uh, pressures, not actually like massive disemployment or even decent disemployment. So people losing jobs. It's really more about wage. Do they have a depressing effect on wages at the bottom end of the scale? I mean, it really is pretty modest. And, um, and then again, when you, when you, Add in the demand side issues, uh, it's very difficult to tease out a, a significant uh, economic effect, um, negative economic effect from, from even, you know, influx of low-skilled immigrants. So something tells me that the people who are making that argument might not pay as careful attention to those studies as you do, Scott. <laughs> I understand. And, and, <laughs> and might just set them aside uh, because, because it's, a, it's a good argument. I, no, I totally agree. I mean, in fact, I think it's one of the frustrating things um, about the immigration debate is that those types, that nuance is totally lost, right? I mean, it's, it, it, I, and, and instead it inflames such passions that it's ripe for uh, demagoguery or just simple ignoring the, the nuance, right? And when you're talking and, about a Republican party that wants, that needs, must make inroads uh, in that lower quintile of workers and that that quintile is going to be disproportionately non-white as well. Uh, it's a huge opportunity for Republicans to quadruple, lipple, flipple down on the immigration argument and not for a second give an inch or compromise uh, if they want to sort of complete that transition for 2022 or 2024 and make that case much more strongly to these new voters that they want to keep post-Trump. Last word to Declan. I think you saw a good uh, example of where the GOP is on this uh, last month or earlier this month when uh, Tom Cotton, who who you just mentioned, and and Mitt Romney came out with a uh, proposal on, or a counter-proposal on the minimum wage uh, as as Democrats were pushing to uh, a federal minimum wage of, of $15 an hour, which ended up not making it into the uh, American Rescue Plan. But the Romney and Cotton's proposal kind of touched on a lot of these issues where, uh, as Sarah was mentioning, the the more libertarian uh, big donor base of the Republican Party uh, of old would would not have uh, favored this at all. But um, a a boost to the federal minimum wage to $11 an hour over the next couple of years, coupled with a... um, federal mandatory e-verify system uh, that, that harshly punished uh, employers that, that uh, do not uh, rely on, on labor that is here legally and, and legally allowed to work. And so, uh, you know, that's something that I think in a, in a Republican Party that was actually as dominated by the Koch brothers as Democrats say that it is, um, you know, that's not, that, that would be a non-starter, uh, but it actually um, had had a decent amount of of at least vocal uh, approval or, or support uh, when when those two senators rolled that out earlier uh, this month. All right, Scott, let's move on to your newsletter this week and the American Rescue Package. You really dove into the details, and this is a uh, uh, 
This is a progressive law. Oh yeah, it. So the exactly um, when you turn on the TV or or hear about it described, it is. I think uh, it's a, a rescue plan, right? We're talking about, um, uh, of course, individual payments, those fourteen hundred dollar checks, um, and uh, of course, public health measures, vaccine development, the rest. Um, what is uh, le- lesser mentioned is all of the stuff in there that is only at best tangentially related to COVID. Um, the one think tank put it out, I think it was about, you know, only at best 30% of, of the bill is really uh, COVID related, not even including these direct payments. Um, and instead, when you really dig into the details, um, you see a, a Democrats laying the groundwork for a very substantial increase in the welfare state and in ways that Democrats have long wanted. And so my my newsletter this week is not really, I mean, it is on some of those details, but it, it is also on the question of where is the conservative movement and Republican Party in noting how uh, the Democrats just pushed through one of, and this is not my words, this is Politico and the Washington Post, the largest and most dr- uh, radical or dramatic ed- expansion of the welfare state since LBJ. Um, and why aren't they uh, trying to either affect this policy or at the very least um, uh make their their voters their constituents aware of these changes because some you know a lot of these changes are temporary but uh democrats have been quite clear that that these are not they're only temporary for now that they are intending to expand these uh these programs going forward and so the in the newsletter i look at a couple areas uh family policy and healthcare um, we see in family policy a dramatic expansion of the child tax credit um, in a bunch of ways. Um, not only expanding the size of the credit, but also making it fully refundable, which basically means that anybody can get the full amount regardless of how much you work or your tax liability. That's a, that's a change. Um, and moving from an annual lump sum payment to a monthly payment. So really kind of setting the groundwork for a kind of a universal basic income for for kids. Um, and uh, second, uh, there's substantial new subsidies uh, not related to COVID for the daycare industry. Um, and both of these combined are really putting forth kind of the left progressive view of uh, welfare uh, untethered from work and for daycare um, and subsidizing kind of, you know, getting to kind of a more universal daycare approach. These are things that in the past, the conservative movement has generally opposed. There's certainly debates going on in the Wonka sphere about a lot of this, but in general, conservatives have been concerned about these types of moves um, that, for example, discourage, potentially discourage work um, or uh, incentivize this double earner um, uh, framework for the family. And instead of um, you know, a, a traditional breadwinner approach. So these are things that, you know, regardless if you like what the conservative opposition is or you don't, typically conservatives have opposed these things. Um, and here it's it's pretty much crickets. Um, and then on 
healthcare. Well, look, uh, according to the New York Times, this is Obamacare 2.0. That's their words, again, not mine. Um, dramatically expanding Affordable Care Act subsidies um, to new income groups, creating uh, new levels of free insurance for those folks, uh, and then dramatically or potentially expanding Medicaid, essentially offering massive uh, subsidies. Uh, I think that was in the words of the Center for American Progress to states that have not expanded Medicaid um, to do so now, uh, really giving them more money to expand Medicaid than it would cost them to, to do it. Um, and again, these are typically in the past been pretty much opposed by conservative wonks at the Heritage Foundation or AEI or the rest. And, and so my question is, well, while all this was going on, what were Republican politicians and conservative media and the punditocracy on the new right doing? Well, it turns out they were focused on Dr. Seuss um, and the cancel culture. And uh, there are, you know, in I go through and kind of cite a, a lot of the commentary from, from both those uh, individuals, whether it's Ted Cruz or Fox News or whatever, or from uh, pundit, from kind of Politico watching this all happen, and just simply saying, you know, where where is the opposition to any of this? And now we see Republicans are scrambling um, after a month of of complaining about Dr. Seuss and cul cancel culture. They seem to have woken up to wow, the American Re Rescue Plan is really really popular even among Republicans, which is. Uh, pretty hilarious. Um, and again, even though it contains all of these provisions that in the past, you you know, go back to President Obama's stimulus, um, you know, Republicans mounted this, this really strong effort to define that the Obama stimulus as um, a giveaway to various groups, as uh, economically uh, painful, as, you know, all of these types of things. Here, you would think with the ARP they have the same opportunity and they really don't seem to be taking advantage. And now they're they're really behind the eight ball because Democrats are pushing on to new programs, um, whether it's an infrastructure bill that's chock full of all sorts of progressive uh, dream uh, policies, um, substantial tax increases, corporate taxes and the rest. Um, and again, looking to extend um, a lot of the social policy that's already in the, the rescue plan. Um, and, you know, you, you were left to wonder, um, does the current crop of like new right conservative culture warriors do they, who, who say we need more focus on family policy, nor more focus on culture policy, do they really mean that? Um, or is it just about getting ratings? Um, is it just about getting on TV and screaming about stuff? Or do they really want to do the hard work of, of getting into the weeds on these policies? And, and as I note, the, the real irony uh, is that there's even a great policy angle on Dr. Seuss um, because it really relates to copyright law and how um, copyright law for, for these works that might be problematic today but weren't 50 years ago are still protected. And so the Dr. Seuss Foundation and others can simply remove them from the market Whereas uh, shortening copyright terms or allowing for a more permissive standard for public use would actually allow these works to be preserved without the companies profiting from them or controlling their dissemination and, and, and use. Um, and of course, again, no, nobody talks about any of that. It's just screaming on Fox News. And um, it's, it's a bit, you know, it's depressing, right, uh, for, for us wonks. But I think it's also, uh, I'm, I'm hoping and, you know, an, 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 
oh, hey, moment of realizing that Democrats are advancing their, they're winning the culture war where it really matters um, while they might be losing it on conservative TV. So, okay, I want to push back a little. Okay. I think that it is fair to say that the Republicans have lacked message discipline uh, because you have folks like Kevin McCarthy reading Green Eggs and Ham inexplicably, since that wasn't one of the books at issue, uh, Ted Cruz talking about Dr. Seuss. But on the other hand, I Googled my little heart out. I couldn't find Mitch McConnell talking about it at all. I couldn't find John Cornyn talking about it at all. I actually could only find Donald Trump Jr. talking about it. Donald Trump, who has put out, you know, a handful of statements this month and done interviews. No, couldn't couldn't find him talking about it. So really, you know, Mitch McConnell has said plenty about ARP. These other Republicans have all put out press releases about ARP. It's that conservative media isn't covering it. And when conservative media then chooses to cover Dr. Seuss, mainstream media covers conservative media covering Dr. Seuss. And so again, I think you can accuse them of lack of message discipline, although good luck to Mitch McConnell trying to control Ted Cruz. He's been trying for nine years now and uh, no luck there. Um, So is it really that Republicans have been, like elected Republicans in the Senate have been asleep at the wheel on this or have they been hoisted by their own Fox News petard no, I think it, I think that's a, a perfectly valid uh, uh, insight, um, and certainly I'm not only targeting uh, Republicans uh, in in Congress. Um, I, I think it's the kind of uh, media grassroots Republican echo chamber that uh, a decade ago did actually focus on policy and did actually create, and this is again in Politico's own terms in very partisan fashion, uh, an intense opposition to Obama's stimulus that led to the Tea Party and that essentially led to massive Republican victories in the House in 2010. Although Um, look at the Obamacare opposition. They drive down polling on Obamacare to like the lowest you can get polling among Republicans for Obamacare. And then Republicans have 41 votes, I believe, to repeal Obamacare, even when they're in unified control and don't do it. So I wonder whether the media industrial complex on the right simply sees what happened last time that they worked on a policy issue uh, and didn't get anything for it. Well, I mean, it did. I I don't uh, disagree that Republicans have been pretty feckless on health care, um, and I certainly don't disagree with that uh, even today. Um, I think the question, though, is that as, uh, n- as these policies move forward and as the folks on, like, you know, Tucker Carlson, for example, who really claim that this is a culture war, um, and are they even, do they care that they're actually losing the culture war where it matters. Um, and I and I think that uh, certainly Mitch McConnell is not in that group, but no offense to Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell's not really getting a lot of uh, uh, TV. He's not getting a lot of the, uh, the, 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 the me- social media dunks and, uh, and Fox News hits. How dare you insult um, cocaine, Mitch? 
no no offense to to Mitch. Um, but and so, you know, as someone who spends far too much time on social media and still uh, a, a, in the kind of right of center sphere, I can tell you for a fact that uh, there was not a lot of discussion in February and March about a lot of these, uh, I would call them progressive Easter eggs in the ARP. Um, and of course, the clear intention to make these permanent going forward. Um, whereas the vast majority of the volume um, was on, and not just Seuss. Seuss is, I think, a metaphor, but cancel culture in general. Um, this kind of, we're fighting the culture war against big tech and the rest. Whereas again, Democrats are are just simply legislating uh, a, a, their culture war and and winning. All right, Declan, let's get you in here. I was going to say you're you're focusing too much on Dr. Seuss and not enough on Pepe Le Pew. He, uh, his his cancellation earlier this month was really what uh, what hit home for me. But I I I, I think your um, your broader point on on why Republicans are. Uh, not voicing or not being as vocal in opposition to the 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 ARP, you touched on it, is is pretty simple. That it's a really popular policy right now. We're we're in a very populist moment, um, and Republicans have shown over the past four years, over the past twenty years, that um, they're not the fiscal hawks that they campaign on. Generally speaking, it, <clears throat> Republican voters don't expect them to be fiscal hawks. Um, and there are all these kind of progressive wish list items um, in this bill. You're absolutely right. But the most tangible impact, uh, the, the most the way that most Americans will experience this bill is getting a check in the mail from the government. Um, you know, I woke up this morning and had a nice little fourteen hundred dollar direct deposit, which I'm going to spend really stupidly. Uh, I don't know how yet, but um, but you Bears know, that, tickets. It, <laughs> I no, I am not supporting that team uh, today. I, I not don't say that today. Um, <laughs> although, although I could probably at this point, I could probably buy like an entire section worth of Bears tickets for fourteen hundred dollars. Maybe, <laughs> maybe I can do that and and have a socially distanced birthday party. Um, but no, I I mean like you, the the opposition isn't there because I think Republican voters aren't opposed to this bill. I mean, you saw even some Republicans who voted against the legislation praising it, or at least certain parts of it last week after it passed, touting, um, you know, I think it was Senator Roger Wicker uh, who was touting a certain provision of the bill uh, helping the restaurant industry and and how uh, he was uh, glad that it made it in there, even though he didn't vote for the the overall package. And so, um, you know, it's, I think Republicans, it, it makes sense for them not to go too hard against it right now because they don't want to be seen as the the people that are trying to stop you from getting uh, stimulus checks and getting uh, checks from the government. In fact, some of some Republicans have even come out saying that the fourteen hundred dollars stimulus checks weren't enough, that they wanted uh, two thousand. And that's and that's what Donald Trump promised uh, when he was still president back in back in December. And so I think you know, there, there will be time for Republicans down the road. I think they're playing a wait and see approach. If this does lead to hyperinflation, if this does cause uh, broader problems down the line, they'll bring it up. But for now, when these checks are hitting people's bank accounts right now, they don't necessarily want to be seen as the people that are uh, trying to oppose this because it is, 
it is broadly popular. And I think they're, you know, kind of playing to their populist base uh, with that right now. But part of the reason it's broadly popular is because Republicans didn't make these arguments to point out the things that are flaws in the bill, I, I would sure. say. I mean, it's a chicken and egg question. It, it yeah. definitely goes both ways. I, I think your broader point is ex- exactly right. I mean, these are, if you think about what Republicans have been doing for the, for the past five years, these are muscles they have not been exercising. The limited government muscles, it just hasn't, they didn't make those arguments. For five years, they didn't make those arguments. And I think that's a, that's a huge problem as you look at where sort of the, the Republican Party is today. And I, I'd go further, too. I mean, I think if you, if you think about, um, you know, Republicans having the moral authority to make the kind of arguments they're making, I mean, this, this is nearly three times the size of Barack Obama's stimulus. And it comes on the heels, as Scott points out in the newsletter, of previous relief of previous stimulus that is five times the size of what Barack Obama did with his stimulus. I mean, we are talking on a scale, massive, massive infusion of cash. And as, as Scott said, this includes so many sort of progressive wish list items that they hadn't been able to get support for, popular support for forever, which is why they attached them to something like a COVID relief bill, which they, they thought Republicans would view as, as must pass in this context. But Republicans really don't have much moral authority to talk about spending. So I'd say that's, that's one of the problems. I do think it's, it's also the case, and this actually sort of bolsters the point you're making, Declan, Declan that Republicans don't, Republican voters, rank and file voters, they don't care as much about limited government as Scott does and as I do. Um, that, that I think, is one thing that's, that's become clear. And on top of that, neither do an increasing number of Republican elected officials and the people who are on this so-called new right. If you look at what policies are coming out of the, the center right, we have a terrific piece on our uh, website today by Ryan Streeter of the American Enterprise Institute who makes this argument. Basically, conservatives are increasingly making progressive arguments, arguing things that pr- conservatives themselves have fought for decades in some cases. Uh, t- t- it's There's sort of a, uh, you know, a, a party on expanding government. And, you know, a lot of the people on the new right, sort of the, the intellectual side of, of the Trumpist right, they're not shy about making this argument. I mean, they're not hiding that that's what they're doing. In fact, they say that the problems in Washington is that the libertarians have been in charge for so long. And, you know, the limited government types are the ones who really have been ruling the roost in Washington. I would say that their chief problem in making that argument convincingly is reality, because look at Washington. But they're making that argument and they're openly saying We've got to run away on the right, on the policy side of the right. It's important to run away from these doctrinaire limited government types and instead embrace the power of government to advance conservative arguments, their, their kind of conservative arguments, their view of the common good, because that's what liberals do anyway. All right. Very quick rack, wrap up, Scott, and then we got to move topics. Yeah. So I think Steve hits on two things there that are real important. And first is that clearly the subtext of my piece today is that this is, uh, you know, the this is what Trump hath wrought in the sense of kind of a substanceless 
Republican Party that can't talk about fiscal policy or really even detailed policy, um, doesn't have much to stand on. And, and of course, with a voting base that tends to uh, agree with kind of Trump's views. Um, the, 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 the second is that the, the problem with that, I think, is that even the new right folks are seeing uh, an expansion of the, the government in ways they don't want. And this goes back to, again, you know, family policy. You know, you're seeing progressive views on traditional breadwinner uh, a, approach to families um, and to uh, other issues, um, ch- you know, you know, uh, work and the dignity of work and all that kind of stuff. Again, they're losing. So, so they if they can't uh, win the actual battles in in the legislative space, then again, it's just a bunch of people yelling at, about libertarians on TV. And we'll take a quick break to hear from Tax Network USA. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is now over. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with them on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best possible deal. Whether you owe 10 thousand dollars or 10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you are on a fixed income, they can help financially resolve your tax burdens once and for all. Call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash dispatch. All right, Steve, I was very excited about your topic because Earlier this week, the Department of Justice indicted three North Koreans on cyber theft charges. And the guy who spoke at the press conference was the Assistant Attorney General for National Security, John Demers, who is actually a Trump appointee who has been kept on in the Justice Department. And during that press conference, he called North Korea, quote, a criminal syndicate with a flag. This, you know, pretty like strong, beefy rhetoric. And I was like, ooh, nice job, John Demers. And the first thing that I saw out of it was an NBC headline, Biden aids bristle when justice official called North Korea a criminal syndicate. And uh, the quote is that they were not pleased with the choice of language because they thought the Department of Justice was going to provoke North Korea. Wait, since when, Steve, are we worried about provoking North Korea? Yeah, it's 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 it was one of several things that that I've seen over the past couple of weeks that has led me to ask this question of you three. Are we back in Barack Obama's foreign policy? Um, and for some context, it, the, the North Korea question, there there have been multiple reports that the Biden administration has repeatedly tried to get North Korea to engage in diplomacy, um, but that the North Koreans haven't. Uh, responded. They are not interested in talking. Biden administration is apparently very interested in talking. And uh, one imagines that the objections from the Biden National Security Council to this language from the Justice Department come in part because they're doing everything they can to get North Korea to engage. Um, So that's item number one. Item number two, the Iran deal. We are seeing the Biden administration one day after another, there's a headline um, basically declaring 
how eager, maybe desperate, the Biden administration is to get back into the Iran deal. And setting aside the question of whether it's wise to get back into the Iran deal, I don't, I certainly don't think it is. But even if you want to get back into the Iran deal, one imagines that smarter diplomatic path might be to leverage the position that the United States is now in and the difficult position that the Iranians are in. But by declaring in public how desperate you are to get back the negotiating table, it cuts your leverage pretty significantly. And then the, th the third are these news reports over the past couple of weeks on the Biden administration's approach to Afghanistan, which um, to call it servile diplomacy is, is probably too gentle probably too generous. You've had Anthony Blinken uh, write a letter um, to the Afghan government, the current Afghan government, basically laying out a list of conditions for the Afghan government to meet if they want to uh, get back to the negotiating table. This after the Trump administration in, in a, a bit of servile diplomacy itself um, excluded the Afghan government from peace talks and held peace talks only with the Taliban. The Taliban haven't changed their behavior. They're still working closely with Al-Qaeda. All of these things that we understood would happen when the Trump administration announced its phony peace plan. Um, but the Biden administration seems determined to do the Trump administration one worse and actually make this worse. And the question is, is it just in service of getting out? Again, you can be for getting out and think that this is the wrong way to do it. So I'll go back to you with my question, Sarah. Is this just Obama diplomacy redux? Perhaps, but the world has changed since then. And um, I don't know whether it makes that type of diplomacy better or worse. I think the answer is probably a little bit of both, depending on the country and the topic. Um, I think that China certainly has changed in terms of how our relationship with China, both uh, what we think our relationship is, but also just what our relationship is <laughs> from an outside perspective. And I think that affects all these other diplomatic choices, whether it's the Iran deal or North Korea or anything else. I find it, though, odd, even if that's what they want to do, to uh, sort of chastise the Department of Justice so publicly for indicting criminals, state-sponsored criminals. That, to me, is something the Obama administration did not do. So this, to me, goes far beyond that, because I think that's a very uh, touchy Decision Now, of course, I think it is within the White House control to tell the Department of Justice anything it wants to tell them, frankly. And certainly when it, you're indicting state-sponsored criminals, that touches on national security and foreign policy and all sorts of other stuff, uh, which needs to be coordinated through the government. But this idea that we need to go soft on the state-sponsored criminals and not call them what they are for fear that they're state sponsor will be upset that we called them out for it or indicted their state-sponsored criminals? Does this mean that the Department of Justice isn't going to indict folks from Iran for IP theft, something that Iran, uh, Iran has been hot to trot on recently? Does this mean they will stop indicting North Korea state-sponsored actors? I, I think that's a 
far more dangerous outcome. And mind you, we don't end up with these people in our jails very, very rarely, but it's uh, very important internationally for them to see us indicting them. It does curtail their travel. It makes some people less interested in being part of a state-sponsored criminal syndicate. Um, But wow, if we start seeing those indictments drop out of the Department of Justice, that will have far-reaching consequences and tell us a lot about what's happening internally. Yeah, I mean, I I don't have any reporting on this, but it seems to me likely that the Biden administration admonished this uh, DOJ official in part so they can go to North Korea and say, look, this person was was way too aggressive in his language and we don't approve of that because we'd like to sit down across the table from you. Won't you join us for tea? Um, Declan, is, is this or should we be surprised that Joe Biden is returning to an Obama-like foreign policy? I mean, is that, is that what he ran on? I, I mean, I don't, I don't think we should be surprised. I think, um, you know, his, his entire uh, foreign policy slogan through the campaign and, and, uh, and now is basically America is back. Um, and, and, you know, he'll, he and Blinken and others have been tweeting that out almost verbatim uh, the past couple of weeks. As they're going on these diplomatic uh, missions, and I think Sullivan and uh, and Blinken are meeting with with Chinese officials in, in Alaska today, um, and so I mean that that raises the question back to what, and and I think the answer that we're seeing is uh, some semblance of of the Obama administration's foreign policy. Uh, they obviously have a lot of the same officials in in the administration uh, now. I I think it's a little oversimplified to say it's a complete redux. I think it was um, interesting yesterday that we, we got this declassified report from the uh, Office of the Director of National Intelligence who assessed that um, China, quote, uh, did not view either Trump or Biden as being advantageous enough to China to risk getting caught meddling in the 2020 election. I think that was an interesting um, perspective there that despite Republican rhetoric on Beijing Biden and and his best um, relationship with uh, Chairman Xi and and these other things that China itself uh, does not see a massive difference between the the two parties in terms of how uh, harsh and and uh, strict the whichever administration was going to be on on their country. I think that's a break from the Obama administration in many ways and a, and a break from Biden's past himself in in many ways. But as Sarah said, I think the world has changed on that front. Um, And then I think with with respect to Iran, that there's there's no doubt that there's a real um, eagerness and and urgency to to get back to some uh, form of the the JCPOA. But I do think uh, that we saw a little bit of a a different approach with uh, when Biden ordered airstrikes on, on proxies in uh, Syria a couple weeks ago, that that is something that President Obama very likely would not have done. That was a little bit of a break. Um, now, granted, I, I, I was talking to a foreign policy analyst uh, around that time, and he compared that to uh, Biden doing the equivalent of facing down a schoolyard bully by driving to the elementary school in the next town over and punching a random kid. Um, and so it, 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 um, I thought that that was a, that was a particularly good quote, but, um, you Wait, know, did so that, it, did that ever appear in, in the morning? No, dispatch? I mean, that's I, just so good. 
I know I was, I was saving it for this podcast. I, I knew there go. it would come in handy one day, but, um, but yeah, so, I mean, it's, there, there are these kind of, uh, rhetorical, uh, kind of flourishes Biden himself when, when he was asked why he ordered those strikes on the, uh, the Iranian proxies, he, he said, you can't act with impunity and, and Iran should quote, be careful. Um, so, I mean, the, there's at least rhetorical flourishes towards something of a slightly stricter posture. Um, but obviously that won't matter all that much if behind the scenes, they're still doing everything they can to, to get back into, into the deal. And Scott, you know, your, your colleagues at the Cato Institute would undoubtedly uh, probably be horrified by, by my approach to this and would favor something that they would probably describe as a more realist, realistic foreign policy approach. But I look at what, what Biden is doing in, in Afghanistan in particular and inviting to participate in these negotiations, the Chinese, the Pakistanis, the Iranians, um, the Russians. And I wonder whether this is less realistic um, in the old school understanding of, of realist foreign policy and more wishful. I mean, there are reports that the Biden administration uh, may sanction some Russians who uh, listeners may remember from our discussions during the Trump administration were thought to have offered bounties to Taliban officials to attack Americans. And now we're inviting the Russians to sit down and and negotiate peace with us and with the Afghan government. Is, is that realistic? Ha! <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I think, and, and I can't really speak for my my Cato colleagues uh, too much, um, and I tend to actually be a bit more more hawkish at times. Um, but uh, I think that the the kind of what I would call the kind of libertarian view of a lot of this is understanding the extent to which the United States really alone can affect these very complex foreign policy situations. And, and that, that extends to North Korea, to Iran, and to a lot of other places. And, and you know, not to, uh, to fall back on trade as an example, but th- the fact is that there's a long history of U.S. unilateralism in the sanctions space just not working very well in terms of changing government behavior. Um, and to the extent that uh, the realist view is simply reflecting the fact that the United States really uh, can't uh, make the any sort of major shifts um, alone, then it I, I think that's where it makes some sense. Uh, but I think there also is the understanding that, you know, to the extent uh, that the folks that you're talking to across the table are also untrustworthy, that it's it's not uh, there shouldn't be a lot of a lot of hope for for a great outcome. Um, but you know, look uh, to say that you know the the I, I wouldn't really say that the the Trump administration's unilateralism paid great dividends across the world too, and that's the problem. And and you know, I I think the the really great example of this is China. Um, and and obviously, I'm I'm shifting a bit out of Iran and North Korea. But the fact is that. Um, sometimes there's just no great solution. Um, and it's important uh, for policymakers to understand that. And this, again, gets back to one of my um, 
one of the things that's so frustrating uh, at times is that, you know, the politicians can never really say, hey, we can't fix it, right? Um, and and I, I wish they had a little more of that um, uh, humility um, because, you know, sometimes these things are un, unfixable. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think that's actually um, a really important point as it relates to diplomacy. I guess my concern, my growing concern as I look across uh, Biden's approach to the world is that he's he's falling into the trap that Barack Obama did, which is seeing the world not as it is, but seeing the world as they want it to be. So Iran, I mean, you look at the, the entire premise of the Iran deal was that Iran was a potential partner for peace. That nothing the Iranian regime was doing told us that Iran was a potential partner for peace. They just, the Obama administration just insisted repeatedly that it was, and then finally announced publicly that they were decoupling nuclear negotiations from the regime's overall hostile behavior. You, you can't do that. It's nothing, you're never going to have solid diplomatic outcomes. And by solid diplomatic outcomes, outcomes, I mean substance, not the process of negotiating itself. That is not an outcome, in my view. You're never going to have solid diplomatic outcomes unless you treat these problems as problems. Now, it may be the case that that you have to say at a certain point, like, look, we're not going to make any progress on this. It's not worth our time. These, this is unsolvable or, or it's not the problem people think it is. But if you're going to engage, you sure as heck better engage based on facts and reality rather than what you hope bad guys are going to be. All right, Declan, last up, tell us about the filibuster. Yes. So um, ever ever since the Democrats squeaked out the, the narrowest possible uh, Senate majority in, in Georgia back in January, the, I think political prognosticators on both the left and the right have understood that there's going to be a pretty significant showdown over the uh, Senate's legislative filibuster, the the uh, procedural rule that allows a, a minority of senators to uh, block or delay uh, legislation, even if it has more than fifty uh, votes for for approval. Um, and and you know I, that's starting to come to a head now that. Uh, Democrats have passed their American Rescue Plan, which they were able to do through a process called budget reconciliation, meaning they only need needed 50 votes uh, to, to get it through and, and get it to President Biden's desk. But now they're moving on to broader uh, policy proposals and parts of Biden's agenda that they cannot use that, that process for it. Legislation that goes through budget reconciliation um, can only have uh, or be related to spending and, and uh, revenue. And so as they're moving towards uh, democratic reforms with HR1 and immigration reform, as we touched on earlier, and uh, gun control legislation, environmental stuff, uh, they're not going to, Democrats are not going to be able to enact uh, much of this, if any, uh, with the legislative filibuster intact. And so uh, there is kind of a growing momentum within the party, particularly among progressives, to do away with this, uh, what they call an arcane Senate rule, uh, and, and deliver on the issues that, um, that they campaigned on and that they, that they promised their voters that they would, they would fight for. And, and thus far, uh, the White House has been reluctant to... Uh, Go that direction. Biden himself was a former senator who used the filibuster plenty 
in, in his time in the Senate and has said that he believes it should remain in place. That changed this week um, in an interview with ABC News. He said that he's now in favor of some sort of reform to the filibuster going back to what's called as a, a, a talking filibuster, meaning that uh, the senators, rather than just threaten to uh, filibuster a piece of legislation, would actually have to stand on the floor and talk for hours. It's the kind of thing that you might be familiar with from movies and, and TV shows on on this period. Um, and so that would possibly be a, somewhat of a shift, although uh, even then uh, Biden has not said anything about adjusting the 60 vote threshold, even if you return to a, a Senate bill or a talking filibuster. So that wouldn't necessarily change anything on, on the outcome. So uh, there's going to be hypocrisy on both sides of this argument. Uh, Republicans did away with the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees in 2017 uh, in order to get Neil Gorsuch on, on the Supreme Court. Democrats did away with the filibuster on all non-Supreme Court uh, presidential nominees back in 2013. Um, Senator Dick Durbin, a Democrat from Illinois, uh, said in 2018 that um, abolishing the filibuster would destroy the Senate as we know it, something along those lines. And now he this week he came out in favor of doing exactly that. Um, so setting hypocrisy aside, do we think that Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema are going to cave? They're the two moderate Democrats who have said thus far that they're not going to and that uh, they will never, ever, 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 ever uh, vote for reducing that 60 vote threshold in the Senate. Uh, one, do we think that they mean it when they say never, ever, 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 ever? And two, is the filibuster good? Is it, should we be passing more legislation and letting voters weigh in on what they like and what they don't? Or is gridlock the better option here? Scott? Gridlock is good. Um, I, I cannot say it loudly enough. I mean, I already wrote a newsletter on this. For those listening, you can go back and find it. Uh, that was back when I foolishly assumed Republicans would not give away the state of Georgia entirely. I actually thought we would have some good old-fashioned gridlock. Um, but no, I mean, I think the, the benefit of the filibuster and of gridlock beyond simply um, uh, the, you know, the kind of economics that I brought up in my piece is that um, I don't actually want policy to change um, based on the whims of the voters at the moment. I mean, if you look at the insane swings we've had in the makeup of Congress and the executive over the last, say, what, uh, since 2004, maybe, um, do we really want a ping pong match of conservative and liberal policy Um uh, every time there is a, you know, quote unquote, regime change. Um, and will that have an effect, for example, on investment? Again, not to get all nerdy, but the fact is that that people uh, in terms of investing in factories and home building and whatever else invest on 10, 20 year horizons. Do they want, would a, a, a legislative environment that could uh change policy with, you know, every two, four, six years, um, would that have a dampening effect on uh, risk-taking in, in investment in other areas? And I, I don't really know, but I do suspect it would have some effect. I mean, you know, putting on my 
old hat as a lawyer and, and advising big multinational companies during the Trump years, I can tell you for a fact that that the uncertainty in the trade and investment environment that Trump's tweets uh, inflicted upon us all and my poor uh, uh, sleepless nights as a as a big law attorney um, does did I saw it firsthand have an effect on people's willingness to to invest and 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 engage in various business transactions. And so would uh, applying a, a slightly longer but still very short time frame um, to the legislative process by removing this last check on, on uh, legislative populism of sorts, um, would that have an effect? I would suspect it, it would. Um, and, and while there are certainly a million policies uh, that I could pinpoint that, you know, if I were grand supreme ruler of the universe, I would change. And I certainly would love if I had unified government to do. I also understand quite plainly that I I would not I am not grand supreme ruler of the universe. And the other team gets to bat too. And uh, that's the thing I don't even understand about this whole debate is do these folks not see that they will not be in control forever and forever actually might be just two years away. I, I want to I'll play devil's advocate on that point a little bit. And, and this is this is this is the argument that I, I think um, you will hear from some progressives. And it it's similar to the one that we we hear a little bit on some of the voting rights versus voting suppression debate. And, and so we, we've had that on this podcast in the past. But uh, their their belief uh, is that Democratic proposals are inherently more popular. And so. If if Democrats were able to pass their proposals, and and the American people would see that they benefit their lives, et cetera, et cetera, um, then they would vote to continue more of that. Rather, and if Republicans voted to do their things, uh, that their priorities that are less popular with the American public, that voters would punish them accordingly. I want to read something quickly that McConnell said on the Senate floor. He uh, gave a big speech about this yesterday. He said. As soon as Republicans wound up back in the saddle, we wouldn't just erase every liberal change that hurt the country. We'd strengthen America with all kinds of conservative policies with zero input from the other side. Nationwide right to work for working Americans, defunding Planned Parenthood and sanctuary cities on day one, a whole new era of domestic energy production, sweeping new protections for conscience and the right to life of the unborn. So Republicans have shown over the past four years, kind of in the Trump era, that they're much more interested in results per se than process. I think there's there's plenty of norms that that Trump uh, abandoned and and voters were perfectly fine with it because they got the outcome that they wanted: tax cuts, the Supreme Court justices, etc. Do voter is that is that actually a threat from McConnell? Do they hear that and say, "Yeah, let's let's get rid of the filibuster. Let's do that. Let's let's defund Planned Parenthood, and then uh, and you know we'll we'll fight to to." Uh, win another day down the line. Do they see that and be like, okay, don't let's, let's go ahead and do it. Steve. Uh, maybe, you know, it's a, it's a good question. McConnell got some grief for making the case that he did, you know, framing this sort of as a threat, like you know, we're going to do this. If, if this, this is what we will do if, if you, uh, break this norm. Um, I don't know how much a appeal it will have to to rank and file voters i don't i don't expect that filibuster would be the kind of thing that gets people to turn out or really juices the electorate on one side or the other 
I do think Democrats are making a gamble that if they were to do this, the Democrats who, who uh, favor doing this, if they were to do this, they would be able to pass all of these programs that they imagine are so popular and then would, you know, swing, swing into a near permanent majority because they're on the side of the angels. I would suggest that polling is a little bit more complicated than we were hearing from some of these Democrats and that maybe some of the, the policies they're uh, proposing aren't universally popular, or we probably already would have seen, you know, the book, The Emerging Democratic Majority was published, what, 20 years ago. We're not there yet. Um, and I think there are reasons that we're not there yet. Um, this is, to me, the debate, I think, first of all, Scott is exactly right on the, on the substance of it. I think if you, if you favor limited government, if you're one of the, the people who still favor limited government, you should be for the filibuster. It's, it is a uh, tool for limiting government and for avoiding the kind of whipsaw back and forth that, that Scott describes. Um, but it is, you know, in, in some ways, it's the perfect Washington moment, you know, we've gone from having an actual filibuster that worked that, you know, maybe at its most idealistic was meant to um, both grind the process down, but also provide uh, at least an opening for persuasion. We don't really do much persuading in the Senate anymore. People make speeches and they try to power things through. So it's not surprising that the parties have been as hypocritical as they've been on this, and it's not surprising that this is the outcome. Last point on the on just the politics of this on the Democratic side. It is very interesting that Joe Manchin has been as adamant as he's been that he absolutely under no circumstances will ever abandon the filibuster, and it's really important for the minority party to continue to have a voice. You know, it, it, he gave an interview to Fox News Sunday last week where he seemed to be edging off of this, the talking filibuster that you mentioned. Um, and Democrats in particular took this as a sign of eroding support um, that that either Manchin was willing to look for some kind of a compromise and and they celebrated this. They were very excited about this. My in instinct initially was that they were overreading the moment. But then when Mitch McConnell decided to give a long speech about this, I thought I was not getting the moment right. And Democrats might know something because I don't think Mitch McConnell gives that speech unless he's really worried that this is going to happen. Now, he's extracted these promises from from Joe Manchin and, and Kirsten Sinema uh, that they will not support uh, ending the filibuster. Again, do you give the speech he gave if you're confident that those promises are still strong? All right. We are massively over time, but I do have one last question for each of you, which is the morning dispatch and morning dispatchers are uh, doing brackets. And if you are a morning dispatcher or a member of the dispatch, I highly encourage you to go fill out your bracket before it is too late. So each of you, who do you have winning it all? Steve? Oh, uh, I mean... You know, my heart is with the Wisconsin Badgers. Um, I have to say they've underperformed this year. I will go. I'm a Big Ten partisan. I, I, I engaged in these email battles for more than a decade in the, the basically the 90s and the early aughts with a bunch of ACC partisans because they always argued that their conference was the better athletic conference overall, but the better, better basketball conference. It was a hard argument for me to make on basketball, much easier argument for me to make on football. 
But where's the ACC this year, Scott? I mean, that's where's Duke? In the toilet. You've got you've got this this Duke affiliation. I will go with Michigan because I know Declan's going to pick Illinois, and there's not much good that comes out of Illinois. So I will go Michigan, but my heart is with Wisconsin. All right, Scott. Is Duke okay. taking First it First of all? all, I need to correct the record. I I may teach at Duke, but I am a University of Virginia double alumnus, reigning national champs for the last two years, mind you. With a coach uh, they yes, stole granted. from Wisconsin. Coach well, they stole from well, Wisconsin. I mean, this is where everybody goes fine. for their good. Um, so obviously, I'm taking the Cavs to make a Cinderella run uh, because they are actually fighting COVID right now, um, which is horrible uh, and forced them to bail out of the ACC tournament. Um, on Steve's broader point, uh, the ACC is very, very down, but come on. Over the last 20 plus years, the ACC's dominance in college basketball is really undeniable. And uh, that includes my Virginia Cavaliers. So, um, you know, it's it, enjoy this one year. Steve, it's a, it's a, it's a nice one. It's like a, a, a solar eclipse. It comes around every once in a while. Don't stare directly at it. Um, but, uh, you can, <laughs> you can certainly enjoy it with the kids. Um, and yeah, I don't think Virginia actually is going to win, but of course I'm going to pick them. All right. <clears throat> Declan, are you going with the Illini? Yeah, Steve took the thunder out of my pick here a little bit. Um, I, I don't feel good about it, uh, in part because, I'm a Chicago sports fan. Why would I ever feel good about anything? But, um, you know, this, this is by far the best team Illinois has, has had since the 05, 06 run with D Brown and, uh, Luther head and, <clears throat> and all those guys. Um, I'm excited. They, they got a really rough draw in the bracket. They're going to have to play, uh, another Chicago staple, uh, Loyola of Chicago with, with sister Jean, the, uh, the nun from a few years back that, uh, came came to fame um and that they're going to be a tough out and then if they win that they'll they'll probably have to play Oklahoma State with the consensus one of the top 3 players in the country Cade Cunningham and so it's a, it'll be a tough road but this is a really exciting team it's a really fun team to watch um my dad's a University of Illinois alum and so I've been enjoying following along uh with IO and and Kofi and uh, Andre Curbelo, and it's a really fun team, and I'm excited to uh, hopefully see them make some noise here. All right, well, I am picking the true Cinderella of the tournament, and that would be the Baylor Bears, who last time they were in the Final Four was 1950. So yes. one one seeds are typically Cinderellas. Yes, that's... this is a Cinderella one seed. This is for sure. All right. Thank you, listeners. Go fill out your March Madness brackets. Uh, the link is at the top of today, Wednesday's morning dispatch. Uh, but I think we've had it in the dispatch Declan in the morning dispatch each yeah, day this week, Monday and Wednesday. Monday and Wednesday. Uh, and we'll, we'll probably keep including it in the next two days. You just got to fill it out by the time the games start Friday morning. And we'll, we'll, we'll stick it in the, the show notes as well. And there is, it's possible we're checking with the lawyers. It's possible that we might be able to offer some dispatch merch uh, to those who do well. Interesting. All right. We will see you again next week. Thank you all. 